beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Since I've not preached to you from out of Revelation for a number of weeks, it's helpful to give a short summary of where we are. In Revelation, God makes clear to John and through him to the church what will happen in the last days. Beginning in Revelation 8, we have the sounding of various trumpets. One of the main functions of a trumpet in ancient days was to sound forth a warning. The first four trumpet blasts sounded forth God's judgment on this world in this present age. Through wars, natural disasters, calamities, sickness, and accidents, God brings destruction and devastation into people's lives. The goal is to call people to repentance. In the fifth and sixth trumpet blast, we see how the Lord directs his warnings against the inhabitants of the earth. God sent forth locusts like scorpions to direct his wrath against the ungodly and the unrepentant. These locusts like scorpions represent Satan's evil forces. These evil spirits are sent forth to bring pain, sorrow, and despair upon the ungodly who refuse to repent. God allows Satan to make their lives miserable so that perhaps some would seek life and comfort and joy in Jesus Christ. When they continue to refuse to repent, he sends forth mighty armies to kill a third of mankind. This is to show that the wages of sin is death and that those who refuse to repent will come under God's condemnation. Now, before we come to the seventh trumpet blast, there is an interlude. It lasts from Revelation 10, verse 1 to 11, verse 14. In Revelation 10, we read about a little scroll that John is commanded to eat. In his mouth, it will be sweet as honey, but it'll make his stomach bitter. This scroll represents the word of God. Just as Jeremiah and Ezekiel before him, John is thus commissioned to take God's message and proclaim it. We see that John, and through him, the church has a prophetic task. We're to proclaim the gospel of salvation to all nations. While the message we proclaim is sweet for all who believe, it will result in God's bitter judgment against those who reject it. In our text this morning, we see how the Lord sends forth two witnesses to prophesy, clothed in sackcloth. It's clear they represent the witnessing and suffering church. Throughout the time of their prophetic ministry, they will be both persecuted and protected. When their testimony is finished, a beast comes up from the bottomless pit. It will attack, overpower, and kill them. Their bodies will be left lying in the street of the city of man. Unbelieving peoples will gloat over them and celebrate their murder, and that their faithful witness has been silenced. After a short period, the martyred and silenced church will be resurrected by God and taken to heaven. 
then the final day of Christ will come. Thus our text teaches about the church's role in the world in these last days. There's a strong command for us to preach the gospel and to live it out in our daily lives. There is a warning that the world will not accept our testimony about God's grace in Jesus Christ. Many will refuse to repent and believe. Their response to the gospel will not be neutral either. They will be totally opposed to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will revile and persecute all true believers. Yet although we will face Suffering for the sake of the gospel, we're encouraged to persevere in witnessing about Jesus Christ. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. As church, we are to witness of God's grace in Jesus Christ in order to call the world to repentance. We'll consider the church's witness, the church's persecution, and the church's deliverance. Our text begins with John being given a measuring rod and told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. The idea of the Lord measuring Jerusalem and the temple is common in the Old Testament. Yet the act of measuring does not always have the same purpose or meaning. At times the Lord uses the measuring line of justice And he finds that his people have fallen far short of what he requires. Such a measuring results in the Lord punishing his people because of their continued sins. The measuring John is commanded to do in our text symbolizes something different. The closest parallel is to Ezekiel's visions in chapters 40 to 48, where he sees a new temple being measured out. Our text also reminds us of the Lord's visions to Zechariah, where a young man is sent to measure Jerusalem. Now, before you build anything, you need to survey the land to figure out where you're going to lay the foundations. Now, there's no use in measuring property that does not belong to you. It's not yours. You can't build on it. So, measuring signifies ownership. David speaks about this in Psalm 16. He says, The measuring lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, please remember what John is commanded to measure. He's told to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. We need to remember that this is a vision that John received. The visions in Revelation are full of figurative language. So John is not being commanded to physically measure the temple in Jerusalem. Instead, we need to interpret this in light of what the New Testament teaches about the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Paul asked the church of Corinth, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 
Thus, God's temple is the church of Jesus Christ. While John is given a task of measuring the temple, we should note that no actual measurements are given. Measuring represents God's ownership or claim over his church. It signifies God's care and protection of this church. The altar referred to in our text represents the altar of incense. We've already read about this altar in Revelation 6, 8, and 9. Measuring the altar gives us the assurance God has his eyes on his praying people and that he will hear and answer our prayers. John's also commanded to count those worshiping in the temple. Revelation 7 made it clear that those who worship in the temple before the throne of God are a great multitude which no one can number, consisting of people from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. It speaks of the symbolical 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel who make up the church. The numbering of the worshipers indicates that God knows those who are his. Their names are written in the book of life. God has counted them and sealed them as his own. They are found within his temple. The point is that Christ loves his church. He will care for his bride and protect her. In contrast, in verse 2, John is told not to measure the outer court of the temple, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Around the physical temple in Jerusalem, there was a large courtyard where people assembled for worship. It's often called the court of the Gentiles. Now, there was a fence that separated the court of the Gentiles from the temple proper. Gentiles and ritually unclean Israelites were forbidden on pain of death from passing through this gate into the temple itself. Thus, in John's vision, the Lord makes a distinction between those who are in his temple and those who are not. Those who remain in the outer court, who are not gathered around the throne of God in prayer at the incense altar, are not measured as God's inheritance. Thus, in John's vision, the Lord makes a distinction between those who worship him in spirit and truth and those who pay him lip service but whose hearts are far from him. There are many in this world who claim to be part of Christ and of his church, but who are unwilling to submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Although they may outwardly seem to be part of the church, in time their true colors are revealed. These are those who align themselves with the unbelieving persecutors of the true church, of Jesus Christ. Our text speaks of how they will trample the holy city for 42 months. In Revelation, the holy city refers to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. It is the bride of Christ to which we belong. 
The church on earth belongs to the heavenly city, to the new Jerusalem. It's an extension of the holy city. Our text speaks of how the holy city will be trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months. 42 months is the equivalent of three and a half years and of 1260 days, which our text also speak about. It is a figurative time for the tribulation prophesied about in Daniel. Elsewhere in Revelation, it's referred to as a time and times and half a time. It refers to the time between when Christ went up into heaven and the time when he comes back to the last days of history, the time in which we are now living. So our text makes clear that the church will be persecuted in the last days, that it will suffer much for the sake of Christ. Now suddenly, in verse 3 of our text, Christ's two witnesses are introduced. A witness is someone who testifies to what he has seen or heard. In his vision, John is told that Christ will grant authority to his two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These two witnesses represent the church, fulfilling its prophetic office. The church has been called to preach the gospel to all nations. Remember from Revelation 10, that when John ate the scroll, it was sweet in his mouth, but that it would make his stomach bitter. The gospel is sweet to all who repent and believe, but it also contains a message of judgment for unbelievers and for those who persecute the church. So why is the church symbolized by two witnesses? There are three reasons we can mention. First, there was the Old Testament requirement that any testimony given in a court of law had to be validated by at least two witnesses. That's why when Jesus sent out the 70 disciples, he did so two by two. You see, it's easy for one person to lie. Yet when two people give their testimony, it's easy to see whether or not their witness is true. Secondly, the two witnesses are identified in our text as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. There's a reference to Zechariah 4, where Zechariah saw a vision of a golden lampstand and of two olive trees. They represented Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. God used them to reestablish the temple worship after Israel returned from Babylonian captivity. It was through them that the preaching and teaching of the word of God was reestablished in Israel. Third, the two witnesses are said to have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. It was Elijah who prayed to the Lord to withhold rain during the days of King Ahab. And it was Moses who brought the plagues on Egypt. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. 
Thus we see that the two witnesses prophesy to the true word of God. In our text, John makes clear that the church is to follow the pattern set for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ preached for about three and a half years. He proclaimed grace and salvation for all who believed in him. But woe and judgment for all who refused to repent and who hardened their hearts in unbelief. Christ bore witness to the law and the prophets. His ministry was based on showing how the Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled in him. Christ faced satanic oppression, reviling, persecution, and ultimately violent death. In our text, we see that the church, represented by the two witnesses, follows the same pattern. The church's main task is to preach the gospel. Also today, that has a twofold effect. It leads some to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It causes others to harden themselves in rebellion against Christ and to ultimately face God's judgment. Thus, our text gives us a picture of the witnessing and suffering church. When the church presents the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it will be rejected by many. Just like Christ before us, the church is also confronted with satanic oppression, reviling, persecution, and even violent death. We deal with this further in our second point, the church's persecution. Our text presents us a picture of the church of Jesus Christ preaching the gospel and witnessing to the mighty deeds of our Savior. In our text, the witnesses which represent the church of all ages are clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth was normally worn as a sign that someone was in distress and mourning. It also often had a symbolic significance. Men like Elijah and John the Baptist wore sackcloth as a sign of their grieving over the people's sins and as a call to repentance. Thus, in the same way, the church is to call all people everywhere to repentance and faith. There are many times when the church's call is not heeded. History is full of examples of people refusing to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. In Jerusalem, the apostles' testimony that Christ died to pay for our sins, that he rose to grant us new life in him, was rejected by most of the Jewish leaders. It did not take long before the church in Jerusalem was sorely persecuted by the Sanhedrin. It led to the church being scattered and the gospel being spread in many towns and cities, in Asia Minor. By the time John wrote Revelation, the early church was under persecution from both Jews and Romans. Some were imprisoned for their faith. Some were martyred by being cast before wild beasts or being beheaded. Their blood was being poured forth. 
And the troubles that the church faced were not just from the outside. From within the church, false prophets arose, trying to lead many astray. John warns against the works of the Nicolaitans and of the prophetess Jezebel, who seduced God's people to participate in idolatry and in sexual immorality. Many of the fiercest persecutors of the church have been those who claimed to be part of the faith, but who ultimately rejected salvation by grace alone in Jesus Christ. In the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church established the Inquisition. It was set up to root out and to punish heresy. But in the end, it became infamous for its severity and for its tortures. Not only did it persecute Jews and Muslims, it was also responsible for putting to death many of the Protestant faith. In John 15, verse 20, Jesus warned his disciples, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We need to understand that if we are faithful in testifying about the Lord Jesus Christ, our pagan society will increasingly reject our message and do what it can to oppose us. At times, the fiercest opponents of Christ's church come from those who are once part of it, or who still claim allegiance to Christ. Because in their hearts they rejected the gospel message, they hate all who cling to Christ crucified. In verses 7 and following, our text speaks about the severe persecution that will come on the church near the end of the age. It speaks of how when the two witnesses had given their testimony, a beast will arise from the bottomless pit. In Revelation 9, we first heard about this bottomless pit, which brought forth dark clouds of locusts like scorpions. These were the evil spirits of Satan, demons from hell. They came forth to bring terrible suffering on all Satan's followers. The beast mentioned in our text comes from the same place. His origins are in hell. So what is this beast that comes out of the bottomless pit? The beast is the anti-Christian powers that attack the church throughout the age, but especially at the end. In 1 John 2, verse 18, John wrote, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Our text speaks about the beast mounting a final vicious attack against the church near the end of time. The beast attacks, overpowers, and kills the two witnesses, which represent the witnessing church. This does not mean that he will completely exterminate the church. Yet there are times when Christ's church will suffer greatly. There are places where the church's public ministry will be silenced. There's times when public worship services are shut down, when the church can no longer function as a visible institution in society. We've seen this happen in Muslim nations, where churches are looted and burned, and Christians are deported to labor camps or killed. 
From China, we hear reports about house churches being shut down, internment camps being built, and people being arrested and detained because of their faith. Near the end of time, the church will be very hard-pressed. Jesus warned of this. In Luke 18, verse 8, he asked, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Our text presents a picture of the beast casting the church aside. It speaks of how the witnesses' dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. In Revelation, the great city is Babylon. In the Old Testament, it was Babylon that destroyed Jerusalem and took God's people into exile. Thus, Babylon represents the ungodly world, which tempts the church to conform, and which persecutes it when it does not. The great city is also called Sodom. Sodom was where Lot lived. God destroyed this city because of its sexual immorality. The great city is also called Egypt. Egypt persecuted the Old Testament church. It kept it in slavery. It beat and abused it. It tried to kill the little children of the church. The great city is also called the place where their Lord was crucified. Jerusalem rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Jewish leaders who called for him to be crucified. Even after Jesus' resurrection, it rejected the testimony of the apostles. So Jerusalem has become like Egypt and Sodom and Babylon. The false church has joined the world and become one with her. Together with the world, it persecutes the true followers of Christ. Today, we see much of what calls itself Church of Christ joining with the world. It no longer preaches Christ as the only Savior. It says there's many ways to find salvation in God. It no longer calls people to repentance and faith and obedience. We should not be surprised that there are Christian churches who promote same-sex relationships and who allow people to identify with whatever gender they prefer. They will scorn and ridicule all who do not agree with their view. In North America, we see a systematic movement afoot to try shut down Christian schools because the state wants to control how and what our children think. Our text speaks about what will happen when the two witnesses are put to death. Their bodies will lie in the streets. For three and a half days, the unbelieving and ungodly people of this world will gaze on their dead bodies. They will refuse to allow them to be buried. They will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Our text presents an image of the world having a great big party when Christ's church is shut down and when its witness is silenced. People will get so sick and tired of their sins being exposed and of feeling guilty for their lawless deeds 
They will do anything and everything to silence the church's testimony. They will rejoice and be glad if the church's witness is shut down. For they will conclude that the coming judgment the church spoke about would not happen. This brings us to our final point, the church's deliverance. Beloved, we can become fearful when hearing about how the church will undergo ridicule, oppression, persecution, and violent death like Christ did. Being presented with an image of the church lying dead and her enemies gloating over her might cause us to despair. What hope does the church have if Satan inspires the world to make war on us, to conquer us and kill us? Aren't we then doomed to destruction? No. The last verses of our text provide us with much comfort and hope. You see, beloved, just as we share in the sufferings of our Savior we also share in his glory. It's true that Christ was condemned by sinful men, that he was crucified and put to death. But that was not the end of the matter. God raised him from the dead. Christ appeared to his disciples so they might receive new hope and might testify of his victory over sin, Satan, and death. Ultimately, Christ ascended to the throne in heaven, to rule over all things for the benefit of his church. In the same way, we're given a picture of what will happen to the church when the world thinks it has eliminated and destroyed it. Our text says that after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. This is followed by a great earthquake, which caused a tenth of the city to fall, and in which 7,000 ungodly people perished. Those who remained were forced to bow the knee and to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Thus, our text speaks about how God will cause his church to triumph and of how he will execute his wrath on the church's oppressors. Beloved, there was a time in Israel's history when the church became very small. It was during the reign of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Jezebel had seduced Israel into worshipping the gods of Sidon, where she came from. Many had turned away from the Lord to worship the Baals. Elijah was the Lord's prophet at that time, and he was so discouraged, he asked God that he might die. Do you know why Elijah was so discouraged? It was because God's people had forsaken the covenant. They had thrown down God's altars and killed his prophets. Elijah thought he was the only God-fearing person left in the land. Outwardly, it appeared like he was correct. The Old Testament church 
appear dead. But you know what God told Elijah? The Lord showed that he was God in heaven and God on earth by charging Elijah to appoint new kings in Israel and Syria and to appoint Elisha as prophet in his place. Thus God showed Elijah that he still had plans for his covenant people. He would punish their oppressors and redeem his people. And then God said, I have left in Israel 7,000 followers who have not bowed their knees to Baal or kissed images of him. God preserved a remnant, and through them he would build up his church again. Jesus Christ is king on the throne of heaven. Today, he continues to gather, defend, and preserve his church. Christ does so through his spirit and word. As church of Jesus Christ, we have the awesome responsibility to preach the gospel to all nations. In word and in deed, we're to show the world who Christ is and how he came to save sinners. Many in this world will not accept this message. Increasingly, we may expect the world to ridicule, to oppress, and to persecute us for being followers of Christ. At times, this may involve much suffering. Yet, beloved, we may not remain silent. We may not compromise the message of the gospel. We need to continue to call people to repentance and faith and obedience. We don't know what the future holds for us. We don't know when Christ will finally return on the clouds of heaven. It is likely that difficult days lie ahead for us. For while we still currently experience much freedom, the anti-godly forces in our society are growing stronger. Yet we need not fear. For as we saw in the first verses of our text, God has measured his temple. Measuring represents God's ownership, his claim on his church. It signifies God's care, the protection of his flock. The world may oppress and persecute us. In this life, we may have to undergo hardships for the sake of our faith. Yet God will preserve his own people. Satan will not be able to snatch any of them from out of our Savior's hands. God has numbered us. Our names are written in the book of life. On the last day, not even one of God's children will be missing. Despite persecution, the witnessing church will be delivered. God will take us home and allow us to share in the joy and glory that Christ has promised to all who believe in him. Amen.
In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing from hymn 81, stanzas 1, 2, 3, 5, and 7.